Hi, my name is Will Fodder, and I'm a senior editor for the Georgetown Public Policy Review podcast. Last month, I had the chance to interview Liz Smith, a geopolitics fellow this semester and political communication strategist. We discussed political communications as well as future trends in political strategy. Liz has done communication strategy for prominent Democrats for years, including her most recent position as Pete Buttigieg's senior communications director. I hope you enjoy our interview. So I'm William Fodder, and I'm here with the Georgetown Public Policy Review podcast. And here I have Liz Smith, one of our GU politics fellows in a political communications whiz. All right. So I guess my first question is just uh, if you want to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself and then kind of how you got to where you currently are, that'd be great. Yeah. And thank you for having me. It's exciting to be here. Um, My name is Liz Smith. I am a lifer in politics. I've worked on about uh, 20 campaigns over the years. I started getting involved in politics um, when I was in college at at Dartmouth. And I've worked on, let's see, U.S. Senate, gubernatorial, mayoral, district attorney, presidential races. People I've worked for that you might know are governors Andrew Cuomo and Terry McAuliffe, Senator Claire McCaskill, President Barack Obama, you know, most recently I was a senior advisor to Pete Buttigieg's 2020 campaign. So I've, um, you know, I've traveled and lived all over the country doing this uh, for the last 15 years. That's great. And then um, I, I love Claire Gaskell. Uh, going, going off your most recent experience, you were, you were seen as kind of visionary for implementing the go anywhere media strategy that kind of took him to, um, you know, from being the mayor of South Bend to being a prominent national political figure just by going and agreeing to talk on any media outlet. So how much of this strategy was specific to Pete in general, or do you think it's just kind of a good idea in general? Because, you know, for example, say someone sticks their foot in their mouth on a regular basis, and do, do you think that would necessarily still be a good idea? Well, you know, that's where it does have some value. And, and here, I'll get to that point in a second, but look, with Pete, it was a no-brainer, right? Because he's someone who is very thoughtful, very smart, very quick on his feet. He's someone who can, you know, dominate a three-minute TV interview as well as a one-hour long podcast. And he can speak on a number of different subjects. He's not someone who has to be overly scripted, who needs a, a big set of talking points in front of him. You know, his brain, I think, just operates at a faster speed than most mortals. And he really likes doing media stuff, you know, and I think that really comes through. A lot of candidates do not. So that was certainly a benefit. And, you know, I just think being able to be a compelling and smart communicator was really central to Pete's success in that race and and certainly central to our media strategy. In terms of whether it works for everyone, no, it doesn't. I, I don't think that any of the any just any candidate could go out and and employ the same media strategy that he did but in terms of the gaffes i actually think that if you do have a go everywhere strategy if you do a fair amount of media and keep your name in the news it actually can help minimize the impact of gaffes over time right if you think about donald trump 
on a daily basis, he says so many crazy things. And he says so many things that otherwise would be major news, you know, a week-long news cycle in a normal White House. But because he overloads us all the time with so much content, with you know all of the tweets, with all of his crazy press conferences, with all of this, none of it ends up sticking, right? And so he sort of figured out a way to, you know, as a complete gaff machine, to basically make gaffes not even matter because it's like our brains are overloaded. And if you are the type of person, if you are doing a lot of media, right? If you make a gaffe at nine, but you got an interview scheduled at 12, you can clean it up there, you know? Whereas if you're someone who's more like Hillary Clinton in 2016, who went 300 days without a press conference, you know, that very time you poke your head up, if you make a gaffe, that's what people are are going to remember. And that's what is going to stay in the news for, you know, a long time. Yeah, that's a really good point. I don't know if you remember when Trump said that Biden wanted to, like, harm God or kill God or something. But I was telling my friend about it, and then she had just not heard about it at all. And I was like, no, this was a major news cycle for a couple hours on Twitter. I mean, that doesn't mean anything, but... But then um, I, I guess kind of uh, going Yeah, back. exactly. But it, and it's like, I I, I find that if, um, you know, like over the summer, right, if I wasn't on social media, you know, I deleted Twitter from my phone just to like, you know, give my brain some time off. And, but then like, you know, a couple of days later, I'd hear about 10 different things that I missed. And, but then you sort of realize how none of it matters, right? Um, and how if you're not on Twitter all the time, right? If you're not, then you're just not seeing this. So I think it's a good perspective to have in that way too. Yeah, Biden was very smart to not ever, ever look at Twitter. But uh, kind of on a similar note, how much of political communications is tailoring your strategy towards a specific candidate's advantages and weaknesses versus just kind of following universal uh, timelines or universal truths? Like you mentioned uh, Secretary Clinton, like not having a press conference for 300 days. Obviously, that would probably be seen as a, uh, you know, bad move. But, you know, how much of it is just like individual? It's got to be a good mixture of the two, right? And like, unless you are a gazillionaire, and can just, you know, carpet bomb the airwaves with millions and millions and millions of dollars of ads, you got to play the game a bit, right? You got to play the media game. You know, one of the few people I know who's like been successful without doing that was like Rick Scott during his 2010 governor's race in Florida, right? It was just like, F you, I don't need to meet with the media. I don't need to meet with editorial boards. I'm just going to buy this this election, right? And to some extent, that's what Mike Bloomberg was trying to do in the 2020 primary, right? But then, of course, you know, once he does start allowing access, once he went on that debate stage and completely imploded, and you saw that he was just clearly hadn't put any thought into any of this, right? Clearly did not even show the American people the respect of figuring out why he was going to run for president or, you know, how to explain away bad business decisions he's made in the past or workplace issues he's had, like he imploded. But yeah, so I do think that you've got to sort of have some like baseline of of engagement with the media that every candidate needs to have but you absolutely do need to tailor it candidate by candidate and so if someone isn't you know the the deepest person the most thoughtful person um, someone with a vivid internal life you shouldn't put them on an intellectual podcast right where they're going to be asked you know uh, who their favorite philosophers are or whatever you know 
if someone is just really not quick on their feet, if someone's really smart, but just really not quick on their feet, um, they're, you know, maybe don't put them in like tough TV interviews where someone's going to be antagonistic or they're going to have to respond quickly. And if someone just isn't comfortable in front of a TV camera, then just like focus more on radio, focus more on print. Mm -hmm. And I think there are different ways that you can sort of balance all these things out. Gotcha. Yeah. One thing I really noticed during the primary was that all the candidates who kind of were successful in the long run uh, kind of had a clear narrative for why they were running and then just tailored it to their like specific communication strengths. Yeah. 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 I mean, sometimes like I think for like, let me just use the example of Pete, right? He was trying to run to be a different type of candidate, a next generation type of candidate, a candidate who could also bring people together, you know, Democrats, independents, Republicans. So our communication strategy sort of mirrored that, right? Because he was one of the few Democratic candidates that would go on Fox News, that would go on right wing radio and do interviews with people like Hugh Hewitt, which also reinforces, you know, the message that he's going to bring people together and isn't just going to hide in his partisan silo. It also underscored how he's next generation by the fact that he's going on non-traditional, you know, non-traditional TV shows, non-traditional interviews, ones that are geared more toward Gen Z voters. And so in that sense, our communication strategy sort of underscored our narrative. I think with some of the other candidates, you didn't quite have it synced up that way, right? They just sort of had a playbook that they were working off of, like, oh, we're supposed to go on Meet the Press, or we're supposed to talk to the New York Times, and they're not being thoughtful in, in how your tactics and your strategy can actually reinforce your message, right? And, you know, just we're sort of stuck in a rut of doing the same thing that people always do. Yeah, so I want to go back to something you mentioned just now about Pete going on kind of traditionally conservative outlets like Fox News, I, I guess increasingly as of late, and why you seem to think this is a good idea. I mean, I, I don't even think it's really specific to Pete. I follow Matt Iglesias a lot, and I, I noticed that after his book came out, he went on like the Ben Shapiro show and all these other right-wing outlets, and I, I think he explained it as just kind of meeting people where they are. Exactly. Yeah, so if, if you want to just kind of touch on why you think that's important or like when it might not be a good idea or. Yeah. So look, I think it's important for a few different reasons. One, you know, Fox, let me just focus. Let me just use one example. Let me just okay. use Fox. So that I can dig, dig in on this. Fox has a massive audience and yeah, the audience is, is generally a bit right leaning, but a lot of Democrats watch Fox too. And sort of the argument on the left sometimes, or among, you know, these media watchdog groups is that you're legitimizing propaganda or propping up a propaganda, propaganda arm of the right wing, because, you know, they just go out on air and say all these awful things about Democrats. But like, so we have two options. We could just go and we could just let them say all these awful things about Democrats on air, distort what we say, or... We could just go and speak directly to their audience and make sure that they're hearing directly from us. So that's part of the philosophy is that like to break through there, you got to actually go on there and talk to people. There's also the, just the idea of like, are some of their hosts operating in bad faith? 
Is yeah. Laura Ingram? Is Tucker Carlson operating in bad faith? Yeah. But a lot of the people who tune in aren't. They just want the news, right? And to them, they're not overthinking, oh, you know, propaganda or is what they're saying true or not. Like, they just want to tune into the news. Fox News is what their neighbors watch. That's what they talk about at the workplace. So, you know, that's what they're going to watch. And why then would we say, no, we're too good for you. We're not going to talk to you. We're not going to meet you where they are, where you are. And how then are they ever going to hear our message? They're not going to seek out, you know, a 37-year-old mayor of South Bend, Indiana. They're only going to hear about him if he's speaking to them directly through the news outlet. And, and you know, then there's a third thing here that I think people sometimes don't think about is that sometimes the audience, when you go on Fox News, are Democrats seeing that you're able to go on Fox News, right? Yeah. Are the people who don't watch Fox News but are like, wow, this guy can really go toe-to-toe with these hosts. He's really impressive. And maybe that's the type of guy that we could elect president. That's the type of candidate that could beat a Republican. That's the type of candidate that could build a coalition. So those are sort of, that's a long answer, but it's something I've thought about a lot over time. And I, it's more complex than, you know, a, a lot of the opponents of our strategy um, would like you to think it is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, I, I think there are definitely people in the right wing media ecosystem who are, are just solely operating in bad faith. You maybe should not engage with, but OAN and stuff like that. But I mean, like you mentioned, Fox just has a huge audience. If you're not able to connect with these people as you're directly talking to them, how are you going to win a general election, you know? Yeah, exactly. And like, so yeah, don't go on Laura Ingram's show. Don't yeah. go on Tucker Carlson's show. But like, Chris Wells is one of the best journalists in American political journalism, right? You know, And there are a number of, I think, more, you know, straight, fair news people. And like, yeah, it, I think it's totally fine to talk to them. So kind of going back to speaking directly to the audience, part of the 2018 successes seem to be kind of because Democratic House candidates didn't really run on a referendum of Trump as much as they ran on, uh, you know, their district, issues specific to their district, speaking to their constituencies. And it seems, I mean, 2020 was obviously a referendum on Trump and uh, they lost several House seats. So do you kind of feel that the issue is nationalized House races and nationalized Senate races? Or how, how do we kind of get back to focusing on those district and statewide issues? Or, or just kind of what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, no, that's a really, it's a smart observation, and it's a smart question, and it's something that Democrats are going to have to reckon with and come to terms with, you know, in the post-Trump era, to the extent that we can ever be post-Trump. But one thing that we learned in 2018 was exactly what you said, that, like, it wasn't a referendum on Trump. Trump wasn't in these campaign ads. He wasn't in these mailers. How Democrats won, you know, whether it was in the suburbs of you know, Chicago or Dallas or Oklahoma City, it was by almost stiff arming Trump and by talking instead about, you know, primarily about healthcare, right? Which is the number one issue for people, for a lot of people. And by talking about, you know, the economy, by talking about like local issues, right? You know, it, it, every community is different. And, 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 you know, even though you always see economic concerns, healthcare costs and access at the top, there are going to be a bunch of different things that voters care about based on the area. And those strategies worked because, you know, then it just doesn't become a traditional D versus R thing that is going to force, you know, sort of a lot of R's and Republicans to sort of just stick with their tribe and be a little bit more tribal in their voting behaviors. And, 
you know, that was something that I think was really smart about what Biden did on his campaign was he didn't make it all about Donald Trump, right? If you look at his ads, most of them were pretty positive and focused just on Joe Biden. And when he did run ads about Donald Trump, they weren't like, you know, hair on fire type things, right? It's like bar owners talking about how, you know, Trump's policies, they close down their small business. It's not like this guy's a racist, misogynist, worst human being ever type of thing. And just like the smart thing that that smart Democrats have learned is that just talking about Trump generally just turns people off, right? Like the easiest choice anyone can make in an election is just not to vote. You know, it's not to choose between a Democrat and a Republican. It's just to say, I'm not going to vote. And no one quite has the ability to turn political skeptics off like Donald Trump. And so just the mere image of him in an ad can like just get people to change the channel and be like, screw this. I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm just going to I'm going to watch the game. I'm not going to follow this stuff right now. So the more that we can for Democrats going forward, the more that we can localize races, make them specific to the states, specific to districts and really just talk about the things that affect people's lives day to day. It's going to be much more effective than just you know running a referendum on Trump. You know, for Joe Biden to win the general election, he had to pull off some Trump voters. And then if you constantly talk about how this guy is a racist and misogynist, and I mean, even if it's true, you're going to make them feel like they're associated with it, which is not appealing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I just, I just think, I obviously, I, I have strong feelings on whether Trump is those things. But yeah, and it, people have heard enough, have heard that. Like, you know, it, it's either gone through or it hasn't. Like, people have an opinion on Donald Trump. But the question is, do they have an opinion on you? And do they know what you stand for? I mean, everyone knows who he is. Everyone knows what he stands for or doesn't stand for. But like, so if you're just talking about him, you're missing opportunity to talk about, you know, what you stand for. Yeah, that's, that's really good. So I, I, I guess one final question. I feel like for the past four years, we've had colonists going to diners and reading Hillbilly Elegy and doing their postmortems based on that. And I, I feel like that's going to shift to like Lorita and Miami Dade now. So better food for pundits, which I guess is good. But if you want to kind of opine on that and then what, what you see is the shift. And I mean, one big failure was Latinos aren't a uniform vote, but like what, what you see is kind of that failure in democratic messaging. Yeah, yeah. So, well, look, I think a big story of 2020 and the thing that people have got to look into is on the positive side for Democrats is, you know, the massive shift that we saw in the suburban vote, right? Yeah. That Democrats were able to, you know, Biden, especially able to win over, you know, moderates, um, independents, you know, Republicans, former Republicans, whatever you want to call them. And so it's going to be interesting to examine whether that phenomenon is going to be permanent or whether it's just about Trump that like the, the people that folks in the suburbs are so repulsed by him because there's no doubt that, you know, the suburban vote, which is really critical to how we won Georgia, how we won Michigan, how we won Pennsylvania, how we won Wisconsin, and even just cutting down the margins there um, in some, in, in like more Republican sort of suburbs is really important. But yeah, and then I, I do think that we're going to need to go and, and reporters should and campaigns should dig deep into, you know, some of the issues, the undeniable issues that we had, you know, with the Latino community. And I hate sometimes talking about Latino voters because it's like making the assumption that, you know, Cuban Americans are the same as Mexican Americans are the same as Puerto Ricans are the same as Dominicans are the same as Venezuelans. It's just it's just not. And it's foolish and short-sighted of the Democrats to think that outreach to the Latino community starts and ends with talking about immigration. Clearly, the economy, is, you know, as with any other 
the economy is top issue. Healthcare costs, top issue. Education, public safety, all of those things matter. And we can't just have a sort of one dimensional you know, approach to trying to uh, win over the Latino community. We've got to also understand that it's very diverse, right? The Mexican Americans living along the border are, you know, they're living in rural, you know, sort of more rural, more cons- culturally conservative areas, and they're going to have different attitudes than, you know, Puerto Ricans in New York or in Pennsylvania, whatever. And so you've got to have a much more nuanced way of reaching out to that. And I think, you know, the media itself has sometimes just written about um, the Latino community as a monolithic, you know, as a monolithic entity and thinking that, you know, immigration is all that you know, folks in the Latino community care about when clearly that's not the case. Yeah, I, I think on amongst Hispanic people, immigration actually ranks like fourth, like fourth or fifth. Yeah, I, I know, it's nuts. Anyway, um, I, I know our time is just about up, but so that, that's about all I had. If you have any concluding thoughts, um, or uh, again, it was just really great to have you on. Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you. I, this is really, really fun and um, great to talk with you. And I really, really enjoy my time. Uh, at, at Georgetown and getting to learn myself from a lot of the students here. Thank you for listening to the Georgetown Public Policy Review Podcast. I hope you enjoyed our interview. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and check out more from Georgetown Public Policy Review at gpprevieW.com. Thank you. Additionally, GPPR is currently accepting submissions for our spring edition, which publishes manuscripts presenting innovative and quality-driven research. To learn more about how to submit, please go to gpprevieW.com spring dash edition. All right, thank you so much, and I hope you enjoyed this podcast.